without telling you chapter and verse of my personal suffering, I'll tell you, tell you that what really put it together for me was flipping the paradigm and fixing my thinking about food. So it's more like I had to become the alpha wolf of my own mind. But the same way that you might be with your bladder, um, because when your bladder says, I really have to pee, like if I really had to pee right now, I would say, well, I'm having this meeting with Tanya and you know I can't go pee right now, I'm in control. But it's a very strong biological urge, just like the urge to overeat is a very strong biological urge. We believe that you are strong by design and you were made in God's image to have a strong body, mind, and spirit. You're listening to the number one strength and health authority podcast in the world. So let's get ready to unlock your potential and transform your life in today's episode. Hi, and welcome back to the Strong by Design podcast. I'm your host today, Tanya Fines, and with me, I have Dr. Glenn Livingston today. Really excited to talk about cravings and how we can defeat those cravings and maybe stop some of this excess binging or just those moments where you dive into eating something and afterwards having all that guilt afterwards. So a little bit about Dr. Livingston. He is a psychologist who has spent several decades researching the nature of binging and overeating I work on his own battle with obesity, which looking at him, you would never believe that. Well, thank you. <laughs> you, you are a veteran psychologist and you struggled with obes- obesity, binge eating and guilt and shame for years. So you are the expert and the perfect person to have on the show today to talk about this. Welcome, Dr. Livingston. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate all the kind kind words that you said. I have to take you to introduce me to my family members and things. Oh, as yeah, well. <laughs> I will do that. Thanksgiving's coming up. That's a great time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right, so you um, have written a book called Defeat Your Cravings. I have. And it's, actually, it's my eighth book, um, your, but it's the, eighth, best, yeah. the best one. Yeah. yeah, you've written, you've done a lot. I mean, when it comes to this topic, like I said, you are, I mean, in my opinion, you're the go-to person. And I think for as long as time is going to go on, I, I think this whole battle people have with cravings and binge eating it's just always going to be something that's there and i think people are always going to be looking for reasons why they do it and tools to not do it so what do you have to say about all of this oh i i, I how long do you have i could tell. <laughs> i could talk for a long time let's jump okay. right in um so first of all yes it's true that i was a binge eater myself i I always joke that I, I lost a war with a chocolate bar in 1982, and I didn't really come up for air until about 2003. Um, uh, as a psychologist from a family of 17 psychotherapists, I thought originally that I could love myself then. Figured if I if I could fill the hole in my heart, then I wouldn't have to fill the hole in my stomach. And so I thought there must be something deeply psychologically wrong with me. And I went to all of the best psychologists and psychiatrists, and I went to Overeaters Anonymous, and I took medication. I, I did. I went on a very long soul-searching journey, which shaped my personality in a lot of ways. I think it made me a more compassionate person. And I'm, I'm not sorry that I did it, but it's not really what helped me with eating. Right. What helped me with eating was eradicating some mythology and the culture about how you're supposed to manage your eating and some very specific and practical techniques. Um, so I will, without telling you 
chapter and verse of my personal suffering, I'll tell you, tell you that what really put it together for me was flipping the paradigm and fixing my thinking about food. So it's more like I had to become the alpha wolf of my own mind. But the same way that you might be with your bladder, um, because when your bladder says, I really have to pee, like if I really had to pee right now, I would say, well, I'm having this meeting with Tanya and, you know, I can't go pee right now. I'm in control. But it's a very strong biological urge, just like the urge to overeat is a very strong biological urge. Now, the difference is that the strong biological urge to overeat is actually um, hijacked by the big food and advertising industries um, with all this hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and excitotoxins and you know it's it's like engineered to hit the bliss point in your reptilian brain without giving you enough nutrition to feel satisfied so they're actually hitting those evolutionary buttons and they're stealing that survival drive we i don't think we had food addiction or you know i don't think thag was sitting around telling marta hundred thousand years ago Oi, eat too much mammoth. I, I just don't think it was the case. <laughs> I, I think it's an artifact of the types of foods that we have and that you can walk out of a, you know, convenience store in one corner and see another one right across the street today with hundreds of thousands of calories available at a lower price and for less effort than it was ever naturally meant to be possible. Um, and so the other implication of this is that our culture seems to think that unnaturally strong food cravings are a sign of a disease or like something wrong with you. What's wrong with me? Why can't I stop eating? Whereas I've learned that cravings are actually a healthy brain doing its job. We, we had to be calorie acquisition machines in our earliest times, you know, before industry. And because food is relatively scarce, we needed to be motivated to respond to food signals and go out and get the food. And the more motivated you were, the more likely you were to survive. So if you have stronger food cravings than other people, that means that you have a healthier brain than other people, not a sicker brain than other people. Unfortunately, that doesn't serve us in the modern food environment. Right? Um, so that was a big learning for me to stop thinking that I was sick or powerless or just unable to control myself and stop asking what was wrong with me. The other thing was understanding that um, this idea of anything in moderation being okay, on one way it's one way it's true. Like in one way, eating eating junk ten percent of the time and eating well ninety percent of the time is a more or less good idea. But there's no education, there's no guidance there about how to make those decisions. So every time I'm in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, I have to say, is this part of the ninety percent? Is this part of the ten percent? Willpower is the ability to make good decisions. And there are only so many we can make over the course of the day. So, so far, I'm just kind of recapping what I might have talked about last time, which is how do you fix your thinking about food? You do it by making specific rules. If you're having trouble with chocolate and you only want to have it 10% of the time, you could say, well, I'll only ever have chocolate on Saturday afternoons and only two ounces, right? And then all your chocolate decisions are made all week long. Um, and then you, what that empowers you to do is to draw a line between your higher self and your lower self. You define your higher self as all those thoughts would suggest that I'll only have chocolate on Saturdays. And you define your lower self as those thoughts that suggest that 
I'll have chocolate on a Wednesday because I worked out hard enough. And that empowers you to wake up when you hear these thoughts that justify breaking your own rules. Um, now, at the time, I was not going to teach any of this. I actually called my lower self my inner pig. I kind of wish I called it something different, but that's what I called it. <laughs> um, and so I would say, if I was online at that Starbucks and I heard, I heard a voice that said, go ahead, you worked out hard enough, it's not going to hurt you, you can start your silly rules again tomorrow, I would say, wait a minute, that's not me. That's my inner pig squealing for pig slop. Um, chocolate on a Wednesday is pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. I had this, like, for the first time in my life, instead of trying to love myself thin, I had this aversive reaction, this very aggressive reaction, more like an alpha wolf, asserting dominance over this thing that was trying to take over. What that did was it opened up a space between stimulus and response. It would give me a few extra microseconds to make the right choice to kind of wake up and remember why I made the rule in the first place. Um, over the course of several years, I worked out what was wrong with my pig's excuses. Like, for example, you can't, if you want to say something, you can just interrupt me. Um, <laughs> for, for example, it's not just as easy to start tomorrow because via the principle of neuroplasticity, if what, if you say just start tomorrow, and you have a chocolate craving, and then you eat chocolate, you will have reinforced both the craving and the thought. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be more likely to have the craving tomorrow and more likely to have the thought about starting tomorrow, tomorrow. So if you're in a hole, stop digging, use the present moment to be healthy. So for many years, the way I recovered on my own was just cognitively looking at those, um, those destructive food thoughts of my lower self and figuring out what was wrong with them. Um, when I published the original book, I, I got divorced in 2016 and I published the book and I published the book a little before that. I, I had no idea it was going to be so popular and that this was going to become my life. So really it was just kind of published on a whim because I needed to do something different when I was getting divorced. Um, and before I knew it, we had, you know, we were having first 10, then 20, then 40, 50, 60, 70 people a month wanting help. So I ran these coaching programs over the course of many years, had almost 2,000 clients. And largely we focused on how to fix people's thinking quicker. So we would measure results, we would look at the interventions, and we got to the point that we could get people to reduce their overeating episodes by about 90% within, um, within a month. And then if they kept at it, they usually did pretty well on average, it dropped down to 65, 70%, maybe 60% at the six month mark. And that data is less reliable. However, there was a nagging problem, um, which I've solved in the last year or so. And the nagging problem is that overeating is about more than just fixing your thinking because there's this response where you say, screw it, just do it. Like you could do all this work over the weekend and you could look at all the crazy things that your pig said and you could disempower them. And what that does is it makes it more uncomfortable to break your, your rules because you don't have those justifications anymore. It's kind of like pouring, you know, sandpaper and glass on the greased chute that used to take you from stimulus to response. But there was still this phenomenon where people will say, yeah, I know all that, but I wanted to have a conscious pig party. I, I was just gonna, I was gonna do it because screw it, I can, right? Oh, right? And I thought, well, what is that about? Because I, I kind of gotten over that for the most part, um, on my own, 
my own accord. So I thought back about how I got over it, and I realized that, well, I wasn't just fixing my thinking. I started attending more to my nutrition. So instead of instead of running to a couple of chocolate bars, I would have a kale banana smoothie. Um, I recognized that if I ate more regularly and reliably, that and I didn't have any periods of restriction, that I was less likely to get that kind of response. I, I hadn't conceptualized all this 20 years ago, but it really was part of my recovery. And over the course of working with all these clients, I discovered that, um, that there's a, it seems like this reaction is driven by a sense of organismic distress. Um, you know, like, like not, not enough nutrition, not enough sleep, not enough, um, not enough time away from the rat race because you're constantly making decisions about work and who's taking genity soccer practice. Um, not enough water, too much social isolation. There was a, there are a wide variety of things that we as, you know, human animals really require on a daily basis. And it seems like if we allow them to become too out of kilter, that we're more likely to get this screw it, just do it response. Now you don't have to give into that response. Um, but the latest book is really about integrating the whole thing together. Like how, how do you, um, how do you solve that organismic distress? How do you combine that with fixing your thinking? And then how do you automate the whole thing so you don't have to think about it all the time? Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, and I think with that last bit, how do you automate it so you don't have to think about it all the time? I think that's the big part that people struggle with. They don't want to have to think about it. They just right. want, they want a quick, I mean, that's why I don't know the numbers anymore, but the weight loss industry and all of the quick fixes are like, what, multi-billion? Maybe it's a multi-trillion dollar? Yeah. You know, I don't know, because that's the go-to. Um, I, I don't know if it's out of a sense of hopelessness or just, every, you know, we want the quick fix. And there's something else that, that you mentioned that I wanted to sort of get a little bit more from you on is, um, or your thoughts, like, we have these really busy schedules and with, you know, technology and, and the fact that we really don't ever have to get up out of our seat, it's very easy to take more and more on and do more and more because we can do more in a short amount of time so we can do more over all time. That, I think somehow, I think there's a, there's a connection there between our partnership between that and this isolation that exists in our society, you know, higher, higher technology, greater technology, more work, uh, less downtime, more isolation. Um, and how does that, you know, how does that feed into like, cause I see that as more of a psychology thing or, or a, a habit. It's just habit forming. So it, it, that becomes so automated. How hard is it to override? Like it, to me, it's like overriding a wiring system. It's like overriding a wiring system. And, the brain is set up for automation when it comes to food acquisition anyway. The brain really wants to save effort and get as many calories as possible for the least amount of money and effort as it can. Um, so you, you are fighting an uphill battle to start with. But it, it's all about prying apart that space between stimulus and response. And so if you can do that, okay, let's talk about a couple of things. First of all, it's a false dichotomy to think you don't have the time to do some of these things because, you know, success is not just about doing more things. It's about choosing the right things to do and doing them well. Um, and also when you overeat, you're 
not just dealing with a little bit of extra weight, but your digestion is going to be disturbed for a period of time. Your energy is going to be lower. You're probably going to be less productive for several hours. And so to take five minutes or 10 minutes to stop and pause and, you know, fix your thinking a little bit in the middle of a, of a, you know, kind of frenzied urge to go and overeat. Um, you know, that, that comes back and pays you off in spades. So people say, I can't afford the time to do it. I say, well, you really can't afford the time not to do it. Um, because you're, I, I've done surveys and people tell me it takes them 48 hours to recover fully from a binge and that they're having several per month. And, um, you know, how much time is this stuff really stealing from your life? So I think you have to take a good hard look. You can take a good hard look at how much money you're spending on overeating food. Well, my, my calculations suggest it's about $4,000 a year. Um, Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, and especially at the price of groceries now. Good Lord. Especially with the price of groceries now. <laughs> it's probably, right? yeah. Wow. Yeah, there are a lot of fat cats in white suits with mustaches that are laughing all the way to the bank about yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and so, a kind of practical basis, what can you do? Okay. Once you have a rule in place that you, um, that you want to follow, and I tell people to start simple. Go to kindergarten before you go to college, because if you see yourself doing something constructive consistently, you'll start to develop a success identity. Most people, they go on these really strict diets, and then they really binge and go to town, and they're just going back and forth on this feast and famine roller coaster. Enough of that. Enough of that. Make make a simple rule. It doesn't even have to be something that restricts your food. It could just be something that makes you more mindful. Like, I'll always put my fork down between bites. Or um, I, I will, I'll never go back for seconds. Um, once you have something that you would like to follow, and if everybody paused for a moment now, they could think of something they could and would do that's not too restrictive or too difficult, but would make a big difference and show them they're going in the right direction. Um, once you have that, then the moment that you even consider thinking about having something else about breaking that rule you say wait a minute that's not me that's my that's my inner pig that's my inner food monster it's not me um my emergency response system must be falsely activated there's um that that's what the desire to overeat is really about it's like the body thinks we need resources now some of it might be authentic but, but if you're going to break your rule it's probably also falsely activated so you want to take yourself out of that emergency mode. One of the best ways you can do it is by pausing and breathing to start with. It sounds really trite. I don't mean to sound like a 1960s yoga guru or something, but just go one, two, three. One, two, three. You start by building your pause muscle like that. And then if you can take a breath in for a count of seven, I'm not going to do it now because it'll take a long time. And, and and then breathe out for a count of 11. You'll be signaling your brain that there's no emergency. Because if there was an emergency, you'd be, you know, if you were running from a hungry bear or something, you wouldn't have time to breathe out slowly like that. So what this does is it moves you from the sympathetic nervous system, which gets us all revved up for action, to the parasympathetic system, which tells us that it's okay to rest and digest 
and think and strategize and look at our long-term plans. There's nothing urgent now. You can even say to yourself, I have everything I need right now. Then you can ask yourself, well, why does my pig want me to break my rules and give up on my hopes and dreams? Why does it want me to do this? And then you can disempower it like we talked about. One bite's not going to make a difference. Well, one bite is the difference between me being in control versus you being in control, Mr. Pig. And uh, I prefer to be your master than your slave. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 it's a different way of... It's never just one extra bite. Like it's never just one extra chip or one extra, you it's know. It's never just one. I mean, I mean, and you know, and everybody knows it, right? We all know it. We all yeah. know it. Well, we still tell ourselves that. I mean, you're absolutely right. I'll just have one more. No, and it's not to, um, I don't know how to say it, but like with, with drinking, with anything, it's never just one more usually, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that's why one bite is a tragedy. What? So yeah. that's an example of a refutation. Okay. Once you've refuted it, you can right. ask yourself, what else do I really need? Often the pig will present um, a dichotomy between either you're going to take a break and go to town on pig slop, or you're going to suffer. You're going to keep working. You're going to keep driving. You're going to keep producing. And People are very willing to take a break to have a chocolate bar or a coffee or a cigarette. They're not so willing to take a break to just take a break. So do you need a break? Do you, do you really need a break? Do you need some authentic nutrition? How, how is your nutrition for the day? And you just kind of go through the self-care list. Maybe what I need is just to step outside of the rat race for five minutes, put down my phones, turn off the computer, and just take a walk outside for five minutes or... If I've got five children and they're all screaming, maybe I have to go hide in the bathroom for a couple of minutes. And, <laughs> right. You know, right. like Without whatever it. Peanut butter. <laughs> I'm sorry? Without the jar of peanut butter. Without, without the jar of peanut butter, right. Yeah. Right. And you kind of go down the list. You, um, if you do need authentic nutrition, it's important to switch your fantasies right then because once the pig has started to get you focused on breaking the rule, there's a whole series of fantasies that will ensue. Like, like I recently gave up even decaffeinated coffee because I was having some trouble with my blood pressure and I was drinking gobs of decaf, which actually adds up after a while. And I would find that when I would get the thought that maybe it would be okay to drive over to, there's this little coffee shop called Racetrack, and go get my decaffeinated coffee, um, that I had a whole series of fantasies associated with that. I was going to make some phone calls along the way, talk to some friends. I was likely going to get the coffee for free because I was there so often that they usually give me the coffee for free. I actually have to argue with them to pay for it. Um, you know, I might be listen to an audible book. I might, this whole series of fantasies along the way. And then I could picture making the coffee and walking to the, you know, walking to the counter, kind of kibitzing with the people behind the counter. Maybe I'd pay, maybe I wouldn't. And then I'd go and sit in my car and listen to a podcast and drink the coffee. And this whole series of fantasies. And I asked myself, what do I want to replace that with? Because I, I do deserve some authentic pleasure. Like I, I work really hard and I deserve some authentic pleasure in my life. And I said, well, herbal tea with a plant-based milk would be just as satisfying. And so I would consciously redirect my fantasies. The moment that I started noticing I was thinking about going to racetrack, I'd redirect my fantasies to the herbal tea with the plant-based milk because you don't want to let the 
overeating fantasy develop. You want to kill it in the cradle. It's a lot more comfortable if you do it then because it, the, the brain gets all ribbed up and, you know, coming up with more reasons why it's going to be okay the longer you let that go on. So look at my authentic nutrition. Um, I have a list of things that will give me pleasure, um, other than, other than slop. So in my case, other than decaffeinated coffee, like, you know, I, I live on the beach. I could walk outside of the beach for a little bit. I've got a whole collection of movies that I used to love. The Man with Two Brains, if you've never seen it, is, is hysterical. Um, you know, I have pictures of my hiking trips. I've got pictures of my dogs and my sister's kids. And, you know, there's music that I like to listen to. There's a kind of exercise I like to do. So I've got this long list of things that if I really need some pleasure, I can, for lack of a better word, pleasure myself um, on you know, without without going to the um, without going to the to the to the slot. So um, you know that that's kind of a short story of what you what you need to do, and it's um, you know there there's more to it. There are places that people really get stuck. We could talk about, but um, that that's what you do is you you intervene, even though it seems like an impossible task. You tell yourself that things are only impossible until they're not. Right. And and you get it moving. It's I think anybody listening, like to hear to hear what you're saying, like it just it makes sense. But it also sounds really difficult, not in that it's difficult to think of something else, but difficult or a challenge to not drive into rate, like not go for that one extra, you know, I'm just gonna have an extra chip or I'm gonna start tomorrow. It's so when you're working, like cause you work with clients, you help them with this. For anybody who's listening and going, okay, I hear what he's saying. It makes sense. I know I've tried this myself. It doesn't work. Mm-hmm. To give some realistic expectation, because I think I think a lot of times when we set out, when we establish a goal, and, and a challenging goal, and losing weight is a very challenging thing for a lot of people because it requires a real shift, not just in our mindset, but in how we've set up our routine. And we are such creatures of habit that getting outside of our, our routine is uncomfortable and we don't like to be uncomfortable it sucks being uncomfortable we just want to hit our goal still doing the things that we're doing and everything being you know feeling good and warm and fuzzy so to kind of i I, you know to set like a, a realistic expectation for anybody that's listening going i hear what he's saying i agree with what he's saying it makes very very sound logical sense what kind i know it's probably going to be different per individual but when you're working with somebody to help them make this shift, what's sort of the timeline that, you know, and again, I know you you can't, it's going to be different per person, but painting with a broad brush, what somebody that's really committed to digging in and doing the real work, what are they looking at in terms of, you know, we hear all kinds of things about neuroplasticity and how many times you have to do something for it to become a habit and all of that, but this, with respect to this, and with all of your experience, what would you what would you say to the well, audience? There are a number of different answers to that. Yeah. <laughs> um, f- first of all, there's something called an extinction curve in behavioral psychology, which tells us that if you perform somewhere between twenty and thirty extinguish- extinction exposures, you will have largely decoupled the reward from the signal that produces it. Um, so overeating is not a unitary habit. It's a collection of habits. And what I mean by that is that, let's say you're struggling with pizza. 
you might struggle with pizza on your way home driving past a particular pizzeria, but you probably also struggle with pizza in some other environment, like going to your mom's for poker or I don't know if you play poker with your mom. <laughs> <laughs> um, or, or, you know, at, at a, at a once a month party with the girls or something like that. Um, each one of those things is a signal that tells your brain there are all these calories that might be available and it's learned to respond to those particular signals. So it's not really like you just have a pizza addiction. You, you got a, you got a pizza problem with the pizzeria at your mom's house and at, you know, the party with the girls. Um, so if you drive past the pizzeria every day and you make a rule that says, I never stop at the pizzeria for pizza, um, what'll happen is you'll go have through a little honeymoon period where it's not as hard as you thought it was going to be. And then, oh my God, it's going to be harder than it ever was. That's because your brain doesn't want to give up the learning, but it's only a brief period. Most people crap out there because they think they're doing something wrong and that it's going to be like that forever. If you push through for another two or three exposures, another two or three runs past the pizza place, then it starts to go down. Like You can't see my finger. Then it starts to go down um, in a straight line with a couple of little spikes towards the end of the month. So a month later, you're, you're largely not going to be bothered by the cravings as you drive by the pizza place. Now, if you meet with your mom once a month, as soon as you go to see your mom and you're in that environment, and all of a sudden you're going to have the cravings because your brain says, oh my God, this is another place that it's usually available. Um, so you have to work a little harder on the, on the cravings that are driven by the less frequent food signals. Um, but my experience is that the bulk of a craving is usually associated with a daily signal. And so 80% people are better within that first month. Um, our statistics say that we had an 89.4% reduction in overeating over one month for the people who engage, for the people who do the work and they, they engage with the program. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot faster and a lot less work than just leaving it to run for years and years and years on end. Um, it's helpful if you ask yourself, what am I giving up by letting it run? Like you might, my pig might say you're going to feel so deprived if you stop having chocolate, but what am I depriving myself of by continuing to have chocolate? You know, like, like being free from cardiovascular worries and walking in the world like a tall, thin man and feeling confident and radiating a smiling presence and, you know, energy and, and, you know, the ability to be there with my sister's kids and play with the dogs. And, you know, like I give up an awful lot. To continue to go. So it's not really a question of being deprived or not. It's, this is from Janine Roth, which kind of deprivation do you want? So it's, it's helpful to look at that. Um, and then it's helpful to start with a low bar so that it's, because if it's something that you could and would do, and it doesn't seem that difficult, um, what happens is you observe yourself doing it every day, even when you don't feel like it. Like I, I know this Olympic swimmer and she says, my only obligation is to get to the pool and get in for 30 seconds. If I don't feel like it, and she really means this, I can get right out of the pool and go to Taco Bell. Um, but as long as I get there and I, you know, get in the pool, then I'm doing my job. What the reason that works is that in the days when she doesn't have her mojo, she still perceives herself as a pool goer, right? Yes. So if I don't go back for seconds, after a while, even if I don't have my mojo, 
I perceive myself as someone who doesn't go back for seconds. And then your identity take, function takes over, which is using automation in your favor. I, identity is just, um, character is just what we habitually do at the moment of temptation. And so if you observe yourself doing something consistently, it just kind of takes over and becomes automatic and it's not so painful to to comply. So I, I'm not sure if I answered your question or no, not. No, no, you you did. And I'm going to I'm going to ask another one same same context but a little bit different. What about for people that are like when you talk about, you know, what am I really depriving myself of and like all these other, you know, you know taking making that that the good choice the healthy choice is in the long run better for you and being able to see yourself like okay you know so i might not get that extra cookie but really what am i you know what am i giving up a cookie versus all these other wonderful things these benefits to better health and just greater energy and you know feeling good you know emotional um, intellectual health what about for those people that are struggling with that are having a clinical depression and who might have who might actually really have difficulty seeing that they're actually giving up anything or that there's really any like, okay, so I eat the chocolate chip cookie, big deal. My life sucks anyways. You know, what, how difficult, can because I can see that as being a, a much more difficult case to work with because it's not just like, I don't know which one feeds the other, but they're so like together symbiotically so strong in supporting the other one, right? Mm -hmm. So, first of all, there, there is such a thing as a chemical imbalance, and I would not want to offer this as a treatment for clinical depression because there are treatments that work and you should work with a doctor to, to work that out. That, that said, um, there's a phenomenon called operant conditioning, which could reinforce your depression if you're not careful. So, if you allow your pig to tell you, your life sucks and the only pleasure that you can possibly have is this chocolate or whatever the rule break happens to be, then you're, you're conditioning a pattern in your brain where calorie acquisition occurs when you have those depressed thoughts. And so you're actually, you're actually reinforcing the depression by doing that. Even though you get a brief hit, you know, from all of the dopamine and then the theobramine and the chocolate and all the sugar and the fat and the, the stimulants, you're, you're actually teaching your brain that the best way to get a whole bunch of calories all at once is to get really depressed. And so often people find when they begin to work in this way that they're not as depressed as they thought that they were and they were accidentally reinforcing that type of thing. I, um, and I guess I made enough of a disclaimer that people yeah, are not going to yeah. do that without talking to their doctor, but right. yeah. Right, yeah. but yeah, I could. I um, so would you would you say that again, um, with the disclaimer still um, applicable that somebody that is looking for like they they want to lose weight, it's actually a health concern for them. They need to do something about that, and it's a behavioral, it'll largely behavioral change, but has been diagnosed with clin clinical depression. Needs mm -hmm. sort of like both both um, levels of health, like they. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. And, and you know, like there's never been a stigma in my mind about getting help. I mean, I've, I was prone to depression a long time ago and I sought help for that. And I even took medication for a while. So there's never been a stigma in my mind. I've always thought, you know, psychology and psychiatry have a lot to, lot yeah, to offer. Absolutely. Yeah. There, there's something else here though. Sure. Um, the, the problem with overeating is allowing emotion, whim and impulse to make important food decisions in your life rather than making them with your head 
making with your intellect. And what you want to do, it, just philosophically, I know it's not easy to do, but philosophically what you want to do is rather than solving the depression as the primary goal, if you want to stop overeating, it's good to solve depression. But rather than thinking you have to solve the depression to stop the overeating, your goal is to sever the link between any emotion and overeating. You, you don't want to let your pig use the fact that you feel too sad or anxious or angry or happy or rebellious. You don't want those emotions to drive your important food decisions. You want to think through your important food decisions with your head and make those decisions with your intellect. Just, just like if you were a city traffic planner, you wouldn't tell people to, you know, do what you feel like at the, at the red light or do what you feel like at the stop sign. There are very specific rules that you follow regardless of how you're feeling. And you kind of want to make an assessment of the danger points in your, in your food economy and create those rules for yourself so that you can, it, it's like making a fireplace, a well-contained fireplace around a roaring fire. You don't have to put out the fire just to make sure there are no holes in the fireplace. <laughs> right, right. No, that's very good. Wow, this has been very, a very, very good conversation. And um, for any of you listening that are interested in learning more, um, you can check out your books available on Amazon. Is that correct? If you go to defeatyourcravings.com, I can get your free copy. Oh, look at that. Uh, DefeatYourCravings.com. Click, click the big blue button. You'll get a free copy in Kindle, Nook, or PDF format. The oh. other formats have a customer okay. charge. That is um, fantastic. Where else can where else can our listeners find you just to learn more, or even to reach out to you personally? If you sign up for the reader bonuses to get the free book, you, you'll get access to everything that we have. There is the podcast. There's the um, the coaching programs. There are a whole set of recorded interviews so you can see how this works in practice because I, I know it's a little weird there listening to an interview and saying, why does Tanya have this doctor around with a pig inside of him? And it, it sounds <laughs> oh, like it must... Hey, people want to know, so they're going to tune in, you know? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Go, go to defeatyourcravings.com and click the big blue button. You'll get everything you need. Okay, that is, that's, well, you heard it here. I mean, um, I not not that often, not always do we have a guest offering um, their free advice. So I think this this is fantastic. So please, if you're listening and if you, what, what we talked about today is resonating with you and you are struggling with food or with weight, um, and this, again, this really resonated, go to defeatyourcravings.com and get your free copy. Dr. Livingston, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. It was a pleasure to be back anytime. Thank yeah, you so much. Yeah, and I think like I said, it's been, a, it's been about two years, and I think so we'll probably do this again because you're probably going to keep writing books, and we're all going to keep overeating. I, and one I, I, so, it, It's a sickness. I can't stop. <laughs> I understand that. Um, I want to okay. thank you all for joining us today and listening. Remember to give us a five-star review, and please share this podcast with somebody that you know it can help. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Coach Tanya with Dr. Livingston. Thank you for listening and take care. We will talk soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Strong by Design podcast. If you found value in today's episode, please subscribe so that more people can find out about our show. Plus, you don't want to miss any future episodes with the amazing guests and topics we have lined up for you. 